Very excited to have on the Joan Jett of comedy, uh, the artist formerly known as the Howard Stern of MMA radio, real ass dude, uh, uh, Puerto Rican rattlesnake, and recently, as of last night, the sexually liberated Louis J. Gomez. Whoa, hey now, on, come on now. First of all, that that was an inconclusive test. It's a toy that we bought off Amazon. I don't think that's true. I feel like every week you guys have said how reliable this thing is. No, you know what? I just I just realized how unreliable this test is. <laughs> I think you're. I heard your reaction to finding out you are confirmed bisexual. I'm not confirmed and I feel bisexual. Like you, had wrong, I, you had the wrong reaction to it because think of like a gay Puerto Rican can do pretty much whatever they want in entertainment. Am I wrong I know, about that? And believe me, I would love to be bisexual right. and be able to use that to my advantage, but I am not. It's just not in. I, I like chicks and just <laughs> chicks. I hate dicks. Of course, of course. Um, <laughs> I don't think you realize, by the way, how close you were. To an all-out podcast war, oh! After after this blind mic bullshit that you pulled on Legion of Skanks, you know, you are uh, forgettable, and I think that's the problem. <laughs> if, you <were> just being, <laughs> if you were just be more I'm, memorable, we would have said, you know what? There's another blind mic in broadcasting. So I'm so I'm so forgettable that uh, KFC Kevin Clancy, who was on with you, uh, you, you as someone said like, what happened to your guys' blind mic? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, he talk, <laughs> I've talked to him like recently. Like he's just a, a, an absolute cunt. <laughs> I like that. I appreciate that about Clancy. He's a guy. He's always he's always been very nice to me privately. And yeah. then uh, like the show I'm, I'm on uh, once a week, the Kirk Minahan show. He right. texted my boss, Kirk Minahan, that one just completely randomly and was like, why is Blind Mike on your show? He doesn't really add a lot. Just for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh Look, there's there's the show and then there's real life. And sometimes there's an intersection where the shows in real life meet. And that gets me into trouble all the time with friends. I just had a conversation with a very good friend of mine last night about the exact same thing. He's like, dude, I'm not even there. And you're like trashing me. It's not the show. It's a, I'm not a part of the show in that moment. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the thing is, if you're good at this and you're, you know, you want to broadcast and you want to be a podcaster or a comedian or or just sort of this, you know, this is a world of theater almost. Um, you give yourself to it and it, it, it starts to take over your real life. Like I don't have any real friends. All of my friends <laughs> are my employees at Gas Digital. I really mean that. Like the people that I care about the most, that if I were to have people over for the fights and watch, you know, watch a sporting event, it's all the people that work for me, all the producers for my network, all the other hosts that are for my network, just because it becomes your life. You know, and this is it was the same thing with comedy. <clears throat> when you start out in comedy, it's like you have all these other friends from high school and they can't really they can't really wrap their minds around why you would go to an open mic and pay five dollars to get on stage and wait all night through and sit through shitty comics. Right. And it just sort of, you know, those relationships sort of fade out and it becomes, you know, your entire existence sort of becomes comedy. And I noticed the same thing that happened with podcasting. The guys that are good at podcasting, this is a part of their identity. Do you worry that you almost do too much? You have four podcasts now. And just doing uh, this show, I forget what I talked about on air and what was off air. Like, it gets very confusing. Do you worry that you do too much shit at this point? Um, no, because what I noticed is, you know, uh, when I started podcasting, you know, even, well, it's not even when I started, we'll say five years ago when we started the network, we would do research on 
how people were consuming podcasts and people were listening probably to an average of two or three hours of podcasting a week back then. Now the average podcast listener listens for 12 hours a week. So why would I give my competition the opportunity to fulfill that need? Um, as long as you're doing a unique, I do four shows, but they're all extremely unique from each other. There's not one show where we're repeating material or repeating content. Um, you know, Legion of Skanks, most offensive podcast on earth, me, Big J, Dave, it's almost like a super show. We all have our own other projects that are going on as well. And we come together twice a week and we do that show. And then I believe you meet with Michael Bisping, which is a MMA, you know, comedic MMA show. We talk about the sport of mixed martial arts from the perspective of a former champion and, and a comedian who is, you know, I'm essentially a casual fan compared to some of the yeah, hardcore yeah. fans that are out there. And then I have a uh, realized podcast, which is more like a morning show. We, we, you know, we showcase other comedians. Um, you know, the, we, you know, I, I look at that as almost my version of what Howard Stern does. And then um, I have my new one, which is Gomez watch the Seinfeld where it's me and my sister. We watch a brand new episode of Seinfeld, which we've never seen the show before. Um, and this one I just started because Number one, I've been talking about the idea for a while, but number two, like I love my sister. My sister is a person who has had a lot of influence over my life. I had a, a pretty fucked up background. My parents were abusive. My father was murdered when I was a kid. Yeah. My sister's two years older than me. She helped to raise me. She helped to raise, you know, she helped to shape my personality, the music that I like, the movies that I watched, my sense of humor. And, you know, after this quarantine hit, it was a real struggle for a lot of people, including, you know, people in my family. And I see how much podcasting has done for me. And, um, you know, it's essentially changed my life. Like, I, you know, if, if I was just a stand-up comic, I think I'd be struggling right now. Um, but because I podcast and because I've, you know, have this network and this platform, um, it's really enabled me to grow in a lot of major ways, both, you know, uh, comedically, artistically, and financially. So I wanted to pay my sister back a little bit and I invited her into this show because I know how funny she is. I know how personable she can be. She's, she, I'm talking about, this chick was deathly shy. Like wouldn't <laughs> talk to strangers. Like would, and it, the fact that she's, you know, we did three episodes and she's making jokes and being funny and being dirty and laughing at herself and being self-deprecating. It's a very therapeutic thing, but also, you know, the show can start making some cash. And, you know, I just called her a little while ago we don't have a, a lot of cash coming in on the show, but it looks like we're getting our first sponsor on the show. We have a few subscribers for the premium side and gas digital. And it's like, you know, I, I just called her up. I was like, Hey, just so you know, there's a hundred bucks waiting for you, which is not much. It's nothing, you know, it's, right, it's, right. Yeah. but I remember the first time I made money off of comedy or made money off of using my words. And it's a pretty incredible feeling. And you go like, Oh shit, wait a minute. I can, if I can make a hundred bucks, I can make a thousand. If I can make a thousand, I can make a hundred thousand. So um, it's the beginning that we've sort of planted these seeds and it's the beginning of something really, really cool. So um, yeah, if anybody's going to watch any of my podcasts, go watch Gomez, watch the Seinfeld. It's the newest one that I do. And um, you know, I do it with my sister. It's a pretty unique dynamic. Nobody else busts my balls the same way that she does. She knows the ins and outs of my personality. She knows all of my insecurities from when I was a little kid. So, um, but yeah, all of those shows, they serve their own purpose. They serve their own need. And you know, if you only have 12 hours in the week to listen to podcasts, I got you covered. I actually, I talked about Gomez watches Seinfeld last week. I like it a lot because you're the opposite of Jerry Seinfeld. So it's funny yeah. to see your take on that type of shit. But honestly, I prefer uh, the Mark Norman and Joe List version. I feel like they of started first. Of course you first, would. <laughs> so they kind, of, they kind of established that, you know. I, I yeah. actually, how fucked up was that? Because I Mark Norman was on Legion of Skanks when you promoted it. Yeah. And I, when two I weeks announced later, I was, was doing the same it. show. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it was just, uh, you know, they were, 
it was, there was a couple little things like their producer sort of positioned the show the way they did episode one Tuesdays watching Seinfeld it um, I don't know if their producer was trolling me or whatever it was but he didn't consider the perspective that the fans are going to look at them like they're unoriginal when Mark and Joe are extremely original they're great right. comedians they're really good friends of mine like these are these guys aren't like just colleagues if I got married, Joe and Mark would be at my wedding. You know, you know, these are guys that I speak to on the phone about personal issues. Like these aren't like just some dudes. So I think from their perspective, they were just going to, you know, watch one of their favorite episodes of Seinfeld on the show and do a reaction show. They've done it with the Sopranos. They've done it with movies. It wasn't, but their producer positioned it as the same thing a week after we released ours. And yeah, it definitely took a little bit of the wind out of my sails, especially until I spoke to them. But once we spoke and we cleared it up and they were like, look, look dude, we're not even trying to, we're not trying to make it a weekly thing. You know, we won't even do another one. It was fine. Right. Um, but you know, being original in comedy, it's one of the most important things in the world. Like if you're doing, if, if, if I'm doing a stand-up bit and somebody else has a similar bit, we have a conversation behind closed doors. We say, Hey, where were you doing it first? When did you first do this? Have you taped it on something? How can I change it to make it my own? It's really, really important to be original. So, um, you know, if they had done Tuesdays watching Seinfeld first, I would have just killed the idea. There's no way I would have just said, hey, I'm going to move forward with this, uh, this right. idea. Um, and not that it's the most unique idea. I know people do shows comparable to that, but I hadn't seen somebody do this show specifically from the perspective of somebody who had never watched it before. And yeah, I think that's sort of one of the, the underlying themes of the show is how would I react in these situations where I'm the polar opposite of Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld is this, you know, nebbish, nervous, beta male, sort of unsure of himself, you know, always questioning his decisions. And I'm a bull in a China shop and I just go for it, you know, so that that perspective i didn't even realize because i never watched it i didn't really know anything about seinfeld um that sort of is a fun little angle on the show that we've been taking and um, i think it makes it fairly unique it's very funny to watch to have watched seinfeld your whole life and feel that vibe and then here's someone break it down saying like so jerry's trying to fuck this bitch you know <laughs> it's just a totally <laughs> <Yeah>. different <laughs> well he is he's trying to fuck bitches that's what jerry yeah, thought to of it in that term but <laughs> yeah he's fucking he's trying to smash some puss and uh he's got to take the shot once in a while he's got to stop questioning himself that's the what i've learned in three episodes is that jerry needs to fucking man up and um <laughs> You know, that's that's I, I would not react those ways. But yeah, it is. It's a cool show. I dig it so far. I know season one of Seinfeld stinks, apparently. Oh, so it's apparently it's, it's only going to get better. It, is, it has not been super funny just yet. So luckily, we only have two more episodes in uh, season one. Um, you mentioned uh, Mark and Joe, who I know like, they still go on your shows and all that shit. But do you have friends in comedy that legitimately are afraid of doing uh, Legion of Skanks or kind of associating with you guys because you get so... I wouldn't even say you get outrageous, but the shit you get is like controversial, you know? Yeah, um, I'm sure there are. Um, nobody's straight up said, no, I don't oh, really? want to be associated with you guys. Um, I've heard through the grapevine, and I won't call people out, there's no reason to, but I've heard through the grapevine a couple LA guys that I'm friendly with, but they wouldn't do skank fest. They won't come on skanks. You know, they sort of uh, give me the runaround every time we're around or we ask them to do it. Um, and I get it, dude. People are fucking so protective of their shit these days. Everyone's got a, a path that they're choosing. And we go to the extreme. We say all the words you're not supposed to say. You know, we, we get labeled Nazis and alt-right and all this other shit, which is just bullshit. It's like you, you, you couldn't find a more um, sort of inclusive group of people than the Legion of Skanks fan base. I mean, we it's the type of thing where if there was... 
I mean, you come to Skankfest, it is this incredible like blend of people, men, women, black, white, any, any, any color under the sun. And the, the commonality there is everybody likes fucked up comedy. We all like, you know, the shit that I grew up on was legitimately depraved, fucked up comedy. And you think of people like, you know, Eddie Murphy, who that was the first comedy special I ever watched. Those were dark fucking jokes about real shit about, you know, growing up poor and, and dealing with the abuse from his father and his uncle. And, you know, that, that was just what shaped my entire perspective on what comedy is supposed to be. You talk about these, these, these depraved topics um, and how they affect you. When I started comedy, it was, uh, I started selling comedy club tickets a week before nine 11 um, in New York city. That's how I got introduced. Sales must've been through the roof. Well, it was for one week. They weren't right. <laughs> Either the week before I started on the fifth, I think, or sixth of, of September, nine eleven happened. We took a week off of selling comedy club tickets. This is before I even thought about doing comedy. But a week later, we were back out there. We had to fucking make money. You know, the comedy clubs had to had to make money as well. And I went to a comedy show about a week after nine eleven, and every comic on stage was making fun of the the attack, and everybody was making jokes about it. And it was it was the New York Comedy Club, and the the logo used to be the skyline of um new york city and it had the right. two twin towers and i remember one one of the comments i don't even remember who it was but he kept on having jokes that bombed so every time it would bomb he'd go <laughs> but on the third or fourth time that a joke bombed he went <laughs> into the fucking tower and it was the funniest thing i had ever seen i mean to this day i have nightmares about buildings crumbling down above me and and the the city being attacked um but that watching the way that not only the comics dealt with it but the way the audience dealt with 9-11 and it was sold out shows people were coming out to comedy clubs immediately new york had an attitude like you can't keep us down we're not going to fucking let you the terrorists win um so people they they strapped up their boots and they fucking tucked their chins and they just moved forward and it's one of the reasons why I fell in love with comedy because it was like, holy shit, dude, this is the most horrible thing that could possibly happen. But these comics are joking about it. And I just as a fan, I'm watching it being like, oh, like, wow, dude, we're la what an incredible experience. One week ago, we're all crying about loved ones we lost and we're all figuring out, you know, what's going on in this world. And a week later, we're laughing about that same exact subject matter. I think that's extremely powerful and it's really, really important. So I think what we do on a show like Legion of Skanks, not to suck our own dicks or pat ourselves on the back, but I think it's important. I think that, you know, the more society changes and we move towards this very safe sort of um, content that's out there, it's important for guys like us to be doing this sort of material because there's a lot of people who deal with a lot of fucked up shit and they listen to a show like Legion of Skanks and they go, Oh, you know what, dude, I dealt with an abusive mom. I dealt with drug addicts in my family. I dealt with being overweight. I dealt with not being able to get some chick, whatever, whatever level of, you know, shit that you've dealt with in your life, we're sort of tapping into those things and trying to make jokes about it. And I think it's extremely therapeutic, not only to be a part of, but to listen to. It's, it's funny you phrase it that way. Cause, uh, I think now you would not be allowed to do that at a comedy club. Like, I think you're still allowed to do that shit. People might overstate it and say, like, you're never allowed to do it. Like, you guys would be allowed to make fun of something like 9-11 on Legion of Skanks because it's to your audience. But if you were at a comedy club or something, you'd get shut down for that, which is... I think deters people from even getting into comedy at this point. Well, exactly. Not only does it deter people from getting into comedy, but it deters people from taking those chances, right? So in the clubs it used to be like, all right, well, you, you take the shot. You know, I remember when Louis came out or he, when Louis came back a couple of years ago, he got shit because he was doing jokes about the shooting victims. Right. Um, I don't remember which one. It was one of the schools, right? Uh, in Florida, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and he had a he had a great seed of a bit where he was talking about it's like you're listening to this fucking kid who just <laughs> essentially pulled another kid in front of him. Um, you know, it's like why does this person have a perspective on anything? He just survived. Um, and it was it wasn't a completely worked out bit, but it was going to be fucking genius. It was going to be like a really brilliant bit about this really dark subject matter. And he started getting shit about it. So I think he ended up abandoning the bit. Um, but that's the issue, right? When they talk about cancel culture, people that say cancel culture doesn't exist. It's not that Shane Gillis is canceled from everything in life. He did. He was canceled from SNL. There's no doubt about it. He could have been a fucking massive star. He could be in movies right now. But it, no it helped him with his what his audience would be. I think it almost helped him in a way. Maybe. I mean, I, I'm sure he doesn't think it helped him. I, I think no, it's no, fine. I know, but I'm the, the smoke, I, the smoke yeah. cleared and he was fine. But right. cancel culture exists all around us nonstop. Every time you question whether or not you should make a joke or create a piece of content about a certain subject matter. And every time you say, ah, you know what, I'm going to stay away from that. That's cancel culture at work. And it is shaping um, it is shaping the the comedy you guys consume and or the comedy that we create even on our level like i can't just say anything anymore when you bring up the comedy club as an example i mean i go pretty hard in comedy clubs i'm one of the dirtier comics that are out there but there's certain words that won't work you have to pick and choose what words you're going to say because you'll shut an audience down and it's our job to make that audience laugh it's not my job to be like yeah fuck you dude if you don't if you can't handle it get the fuck out that's not it. We're trying to get laughs. We're trying to be as funny as possible. So you need to go and figure out what works in stand-up comedy. Unlike podcasting, it's based off of trial and error with an audience and that audience, you're, you're using that audience as sort of um, a guiding, you know, a, a guiding stick as to where to go with what and like, Oh, this works. This doesn't work. You, you put this in, you take this out. And um, if the audience is afraid to laugh because they're afraid of what the table next door to them is going to think, they're going to shape this very differently. So that's, um, it's a challenge definitely, but I think it just makes us have to be a little bit better. If you want to do dark subject matter or fucked up subject matter, you have to be better at it. If you're going to say the words you're not supposed to say, they better be fucking funny because if they're not, you're going to fucking burn up there. And, but, but that's what it should be. You should bomb. That should be what that, the price you pay should be. You have, you have a shitty set at a comedy club. And if you have a few shitty sets in a row, you're not going to get worked at that club. Right. But it shouldn't be, let's go after this person. Let's try to cancel them. He made a joke about rape or he made a joke about racism or whatever it is. Um, the absurdity when you make these jokes about any of these subjects, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is, whether it's race issues, whether it's sex, whether it's rape, whether it's all of these things you're not supposed to really joke about or talk about. The reason it's funny is not because you are making fun of a victim. It's but it's because you're making you're making light of this crazy fucking dark subject matter. And that that right there in itself is like, whoa, I was not expecting that. It's misdirection. It's, it's you know, it. we we know we're not supposed to say these words. They, we wouldn't use that if, if we were just using them in a way where we're like, oh yeah, look at this, you know, fucking, you know, Jew over here. It's like, we're not doing that. We're, we're you're, you're using these words in a way where you go like, oh no, it's supposed to shock you. It's supposed to, it's supposed to be wrong. You're supposed to go, oh shit, I'm not supposed to laugh at this. That is the type of, it's just a style of comedy. And I feel like that has been misconstrued. People love to just sort of, everything's become politicized these days. So even if you do a type of comedy where you say, oh no, I just want to express myself freely and, and talk about fucked up things. You go, well, you're, you're a Trump supporter. You're a Nazi. You're like, what the fuck does this have to do with Trump? <laughs> yeah. And maybe I phrased the Shane thing weird. Cause obviously I think SNL would have probably helped his career more than, uh, more than hurt it. But 
uh, my point was more that like yeah, a few more people know Shane's name, so people might check him out now as a headliner where uh, uh, maybe he wouldn't have sold out shows before, and now he will. But the next Shane Gillis looks at that and is like, well, I'm not going to go through that bullshit and not even try to be that, you know? They won't even go for it. They won't even take right. the shot. Think about that. SNL, what an incredible addition to the cast Shane Gillis would have been. You look right. at Shane's sketches that he does independently. It's funny. It's literally funnier than anything SNL's created in a decade. That's not bullshit. Like the, the shit that Shane and uh, it was it's Gillian Keeves. That's uh, the, uh, the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those sketches are fucking hilarious. Substantially funnier than anything that SNL is creating. So. Right. The audience suffers. It's not like be, for for people that honestly that they don't actually even give a shit. The people that complain about these things, they're not even fans of comedy. They're not even consuming comedy. They just want to be a part of something. They want to feel as if they could, you know, create some sort of impact on the world. And they, you know, they look to be a part of this cancel culture movement. So, um, yeah, Shane. You know, the the reality is like, you can't be focused on all the things you lose. If I was focused on all the things that I don't have. All the things that I've lost because they're like, oh, Louis J. Gomez, he says crazy shit. Legion of Skanks, those guys are, are nuts. Yeah. I would drive myself crazy. And if I knew about them, I would drive myself crazy. You don't, it's what you don't, you know how many things I have not heard about where my name has come up behind the scenes and they're like, oh, we need a Puerto Rican guy that fucking has tattoos to play this thing. And they go, Louis, uh, you know what? No, fuck <laughs> yeah. it. I'm not, that's not going to work. And I, I can't really focus on that. You focus on the things you have. You focus on the opportunities that it creates. So Shane, it's just a, another card that he was dealt. Um, you know, he, uh, whether the trying to quantify the loss or versus you know what he's gained from it, it's nearly impossible. But he can just play the card, and Shane's going to be fine. Shane, you know, Shane's a brilliant comic, and he's a great guy, and he's you know extremely funny in every medium that he's in. So he'll be completely okay. But people that claim that cancel culture doesn't, doesn't exist, they're very they they're simplifying things in such a major way. They're like, well, Louis still can go sell out theaters. I'm like, yeah, but he can't go win an Emmy. He can't create a. a and a there's movie. a lot of theaters that wouldn't even have. Yeah, of course, you know, and it's it's so yeah, it's sort of oversimplifying things to say it doesn't exist. Shane, by the way, is the one who uh, instigated a podcast war between me and you. Uh, he, I told him about the blind mic thing, and he goes, "Start a war." But then I asked, "Do I have the Matt and Shane army behind me?" And he goes, "Nah, bro." <laughs> so I was like, "Well, what the fuck, Shane?" Yeah, no, you don't want none of this podcast war, doggy. It ain't gonna I really end don't. Well for you. I would, I would, <laughs> I would go into it like, "Hey, fuck you, Lewis," and then get the fire of ten thousand suns on me. I'm like, I didn't want. I'm sorry. Well, I didn't. You know, I, I, I'm more responsible with that now than I used to be because I, um. Uh, when we first started, like we got into a thing with the guys, we fuck girls and I'm friends with right. those girls now. Um, but it's very funny. You, we didn't realize at the time, like how passionate the fan base was. So it's like our fans, they are savages. They, they will keep on like there, there are people that they'll just keep trolling and people that aren't used to being trolled. They really get affected by it. Like when people say mean things on the internet about somebody oh yeah if, if you're not if you haven't had a thousand mean things said about you and you're not desensitized to it it really affects you it still affects me and i get trolled more than anybody in the world and once in a while somebody will get me and i'm like oh you son of a bitch you fucking you you, you dug that knife in and i was having a bad day i was running late for something i look at my phone i see some shitty comment um but you know a lot of other people they they're not used to it so it really i mean the first time people started trolling me it was like the obi and anthony subreddit back in the day when that that, that existed and we had first maybe come on Anthony Cumia's network. And once you sort of get involved and entangled in that world, you're just a, you're a character in that world. And, you know, I would go to the subreddit and there'd be, you know, just fucking whole 
pages of things saying how much they hate me and they want me to fucking die. <laughs> and I have to like fight myself to not like respond and be like, yeah, dude, you don't fucking know. Um, but once you step back from it for a minute, you realize it is just people. They're all fans for the most part, even the ones that hate you. It's like everyone hates Queen Cersei on Game of Thrones, but she's such an important character. Like you, nobody would say, well, if, if, the show, if she didn't exist on the show, the show wouldn't exist. Right. So you have to, you know, I've sort of embraced being the villain a little bit. I've embraced being the bad guy. I've embraced when people don't like me, I'll go right back at them and I, I make it a bit. But I mean, nobody that it never leaves the Internet. It's not like people come to my comedy shows and they're like, dude, fuck you. I'm going to fight you. Right. It never, ever, ever, ever happens. So I think that's the more important thing. I think we need to step away from, you know, our cell phones sometimes and realize the real interactions in life are the ones that are actually valuable and the ones that mean something. And the ones that are on the Internet are just that. Yeah, it's I, I've started to get a little better at it, hopefully. But like I, I was one that I'd wilt immediately if people said me because well, you have to call like, an op you have to call an operator and she has to read the <laughs> trolling to excuse you excuse me can I help me with this what, what is this person <laughs> saying about me <laughs> but but i would read that shit and like sometimes it would it would feel to me like it was so such a personal attack that i'd reach out to the person and be like hey what the fuck is this and they're like oh i'm kidding man i, li I like you and yeah. i'm like oh well <laughs> all right so you can't i guess you can't take it that seriously but i i do get very worked up about it well, we, yeah, we work in a world where we're busting balls constantly, right? You're, yeah. you're in the barstool world. These guys, you know, they're ball busters. They're you know, trashing you for being fucking blind and fucking whatever else it is, right? Right, right. So they think they're a part of it. You know, there's that great meme um, where it's like three, uh, you know, it's a kid eating an ice cream cone sitting next to a sign. It's like an advertisement for ice cream. And there's three kids eating ice cream in the advertisement. And then there's one kid sitting next to the sign eating the ice cream cone with them. And it says what it feels like to be a podcast fan. So it's like, they feel like they're a part of the conversation. They feel like they're, you know, one of the guys. So you'll make these jokes and then people will they'll just sort of take it to that level. I, I posted something the other day. I posted a picture of me and my son in jujitsu the other day. And somebody wrote, it was just, it was such a benign comment. It wasn't even anything really offensive about my kid. But I responded, I was like, hey, dude, quick way to get blocked is to make stupid jokes on pictures of my kid. Yeah. And then other people are chiming in. They're like, they're like, dude, you make these crazy jokes all the time, you know? And I'm like, well, no, first of all, I'm not going on somebody's Instagram making a joke about somebody's kid. And I'm not like my, my son's mother, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins, none of them are in this world of like fucked up jokes, right? So yeah. they're not understanding. All they're going is like, what the fuck is this person saying about my family member? Like, that's crazy. Um, so... I think it's sort of that side of it. People don't realize that it's like, no, we do have lives outside of these jokes that we make. It's not, we're not always in the mood to be busting balls or, um, but it really all is in good fun. I wasn't like mad at the guy. I was just simply saying like, Hey dude, don't post comments on pictures of my kid because like I get it, but his mom isn't going to fucking understand it. I do right. have to deal with this. She hits me up all the time. She's like, did you see this person made a comment about James on your Instagram? It's like, and I was like, yeah, they're kidding. They're not, they don't really, they're not really fucking pieces they're of shit. They're not going to molest just, him. Don't worry. No, they're just making a joke because <laughs> yeah, they yeah, think yeah. it's the type of humor we do, but you do have to sort of mitigate it in, in uh, you know, a certain way. For the most part, I keep all my fucked up jokes on Twitter and then my pictures and advertisements and some family stuff I put on Instagram and it's just sort of two different worlds, but you know, I can't blame the people for making jokes. I can't blame people for fucking like now that, now that we did the lie detector test and the actual result was I'm not, I cannot say with 100% certainty that I'm not bisexual. That was all it was. Okay. Okay. Um, but now I will be called bisexual or gay for the next 10 years of my life. This Nothing is just wrong with that, man. Just what I have to accept. <laughs>
but yeah, it, it is a weird line though, because like, so, you know, I'll see uh, people that know me from the show or whatever that are like, Hey, you blind fat fuck. And I'm like, well, that's a weird thing to say to a stranger. But then yeah. I also have to tell myself like, Oh, it's a show reference. They're trying to be, they don't know me any other way. So that's a way and you're of not saying, a stranger to them. Hello. You're, yeah, you're right. not a stranger right. to them. These people, I mean, dude, it, look, and you live, we, we look, I have people, I had a guy come up to me the other night at a show. I was like, dude, like meeting you right now, it's, you know, it's just one of my fucking dreams. Like the, the fact that I get to stand in front of you and shake your hand, it's, you know, thank you so much. Everything you do means so much to me. It's the same exact thing as the guy that goes, yeah, fuck you, Lewis. You're, you're, you know, a gay fat bitch, whatever it is. Right. <laughs> it's really, it's the same. They're just, you know, we affect them in a certain way. And this guy's busting balls and he feels like he knows you. This guy feels like he knows you and he's, you know, emotional in that moment you have to be appreciative of the fact that people remember you and know who you are and, and you create some sort of emotional trigger with them. You know, if people say they hate you, I mean, that is one step away from them loving you. <laughs> you, know, you know how many girls that I fucked that they start off by saying, I think you're disgusting. I hate you. <laughs> I, it's like, uh, you know, it's yeah, they end I saying never... that too, but you've just, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. Get a little um, bit does uh does being like as open as you are ever get to you because like i mean i try to be that way to be very honest about uh you know what's going on in my head and all that type of shit but like you literally a few weeks ago on legion of skanks you read uh your father's police report from a sexual assault that he committed allegedly committed i'll say but, allegedly like, like that she like that i'm very impressed with where i'm like that's an unbelievable to read that on air is a pretty crazy moment you know um yeah maybe it's not for you look i'm i'm more open than most people um you know i i read that report at the same time as everybody else a fan put it on twitter and i never found it this guy had access he was a lawyer so he had access to like you know old newspaper articles and fucking he's in a library looking at microfiche somewhere like doing his (laughs) trying to find shit on me um and he wasn't doing it in a way to troll me he was doing it in a way where he knows the type of comedy that i do and that we do and he goes dude you guys are gonna love this for skanks and he sent it (laughs) and we did it was it was really really um the way we did it was very funny right um but look it's it's a it's a form of therapy to a certain degree it's like if i can look at this subject matter and try to create something funny or something positive out of it it is you know it is this process that you have to do a lot of thinking you have to do a lot of soul searching you're 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 looking at things you're stepping away from the emotion of it you're looking at it in a logical way um and that's sort of the way that i've looked at everything that i talk about i i you know i'm, I'm an open book there's nothing that i hide um you know good or bad i mean i'm i'm pretty open about everything so you know that you know yeah i mean when i initially read it yeah it hurt and you know finding out those things about your parents or your dad um i think other people would want to maybe bury it away um for me it was you know just sort of the opposite i i look at things i do have like a producer's mind as well so immediately i was like that's going to be great on the show so yeah. i can separate myself from it um but yeah, I think that for me personally, comedy has been very, very therapeutic and, you know, it, it saved my life in a lot of ways. I, I could have gone a, down a very, very different path. So, um, yeah, I don't really shy away from any of that. Are you in therapy or anything like that? Uh, not right now, but I have been a bunch. Yeah. I've done a lot of therapy. I've done anger management. Um, and, 
you know, I learned because I used to always say like, oh, comedy is my therapy. And I sort of have always had this philosophy, but it's also you do need therapy therapy. You need to cry about these things sometimes, too. You need to, you know, look at your life and not always be trying to make a joke out of it and you take some things a little more seriously. And I've been able to do that a little bit as I've gotten older, especially now that I got a kid, I got an eight year old son. Um, you know, I'm trying to be the best role model for him. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, just all, all the little you, you, everyone knows if you step outside of yourself, you could point out all the things that are wrong. You can say, you got to fix that. You got to fix that. Your diet could be better here. You could be exercising more here. You could have better relationships with these people. You're being a dick in this thing. You know, you know, your emotion just sort of takes over you sometimes and you fuck up. But from a logical standpoint, I know the things that I have to be doing in order to be the best father possible and to be the best person possible. So it's been a, a process of stepping outside of myself and trying to fix those things, um, you know, as often as possible. Well, one thing I uh, kind of admire about you is like the what I mean, maybe it's a kind of a facade for entertainment, but like you seem to have incredible confidence. But the way you describe yourself in high school is being like a goth weirdo. Did you have to make that? Were you always kind of confident or did you have to make that change at some point? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was I was always into being unique. Right. So even like there was goth kids in my high school that didn't like me because I wasn't a goth kid. Right. I was like like me and my friends were a unique crew of kids. Um, I was nominated for most individualistic in my class superlatives. Um, you know, uh, you know, I just I wore eyeliner, not because goth kids were wearing eyeliner. It's because the other Puerto Rican kids in my neighborhood weren't, you know, and they'd be like most individualistic. I feel like means like this kid may shoot up the school. Yes. Basically. Keep an eye on him. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I was always, I was always me, you know, I was in a band in high school. I was always a producer. I was always the guy putting together the shows. Um, there's a video. In fact, there's a, Co a Coheed and Cambria video from a show that I produced. You can look it up. It's like Coheed and Cambria, the, the back door in Nyack. Um, I think they were called Shibuti. I don't even know if they changed their name yet. Um, but it's like, I jump on stage at the end of the show. I'm like, hey guys, we got t-shirts in the back. It's like, I'm, I'm being me. I'm always a salesman. I'm always looking to sort of be at the center of these universes. Um, yeah, I, I haven't changed much. It's just, you know, I don't know. I just started working out when I, I got a little bit older. It's really the only difference. Um, I've been, I mean, you kind of referenced it earlier, but I've been to uh, the last three Skankfest. And like you were saying, it's crazy the reputation that a uh, Skankfest fan, it kind of, uh, Kirk Minahan's fans are kind of like this as well, where because the show has a certain tone to it, people are like, oh, these Barstool's the same way, where you're like, oh, these scumbags. Right. Um, but it's really, like when I was at Skankfest, it's the most, one of the most accepting groups I've ever been around. And it's, uh, you know, a crazy tight community. Like I, I'm a blind, socially awkward weirdo that like, you know, bumps into shit and moves around weird. And mm. people were incredibly nice and uh, uh, conversational and all that. Um, but all that is a lead up to like, will we ever be able to do that again? Because the one downside of Skankfest is that you're crammed in there. Like, fuck it, you know, you can smell the, uh, the body odor of the person next to you. So will that yeah. happen anytime soon? So Skankfest is unique. Like people don't understand, like most comedy festivals are at 10 different venues over the course of a week, whatever it is, right? Skankfest is a party. You know, it's 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 a house party. It feels tight. You know, we have we were at Brooklyn Bazaar for a couple of years in a row, and it's just four different rooms, four different stages. Um, and 
you know, you're bumping into all of your favorite comedians, all of your favorite podcasters. There's over 150 performers, um, all of these different live shows. There's music, you know, there's everyone's smoking weed. It's very counterculture. So everyone's sharing joints and fucking doing drugs and hooking up in bathrooms. And it is, it is, there's nothing like it. Right. It's, it's one of the things I'm most proud of that I've ever been a part of. Um, you know, the concept came from, I, I would do these heavy metal cruises. I did a, a cruise called Shiprocked. And once you're on the boat, you're on the boat. You can't escape. Everyone's eating together. Everyone's partying together. There's different stages on different decks that are all starting every every half an hour or an hour. There's a new show starting. That's where it came from. The concept of Skankfest came from. I stole it from a fucking heavy metal cruise. Yeah. I was like, well, imagine there wasn't a ship. We just had a venue that we that acted as the ship and nobody could leave. Nobody's, you know, I mean, you can leave, but nobody does leave. Like everyone's <laughs> on everyone's on different decks doing different things and new, new shit is starting every hour. So it was very, very, nobody has ever created something like that before in terms of um, a comedy festival. And, you know, if somebody, I'm sure somebody will copy the idea one day. Um, Will it come back? I think so. I mean, I think we need to get society needs to get back to normal. We would look our fan base would do it right now. Our fan base would come to uh, Skankfest and would rub elbows and 10% of them could die and they wouldn't give a shit. Right. <laughs> um, but it's not about so much like with the audience or with the audience do it, but I need to get all of these comics. It can't just be like fucking, you know, you know, the, the 20 comedians that don't believe COVID is real. It has yeah, to yeah. be, you have to get everybody. And I'm very proud of the fact that it's not just a bunch of dirty comics. We had Gaff again a couple of years ago, right. you know, guys like Nate Bargatze. Um, you know, we had uh, Nikki Glaze. Janine Garofalo is there. Janine For Garofalo. anyone who thinks it's like an alt-right fest. No, it's, you know? it's, yeah, we really, I mean, dude, uh, um, I mean, we have so many, it's, it's literally the, the list goes on and on. And of course, we have all of the dirty ones and all of the guys that you know from this world uh, of skanks. But we try to make it really inclusive. And we I love showing off to these other comics that aren't a part of our world how incredible our audience is. Because everybody walks out of Skankfest going like, holy shit, that was the best crowd I've ever performed in front of in my entire life. The most supportive crowd. I mean, you're talking about people that are... They're, you know, comics that appear once or twice on some of these podcasts, they walk around like celebrities. People are asking them for autographs and they want to take pictures with them. You know, the comics that come into Skankfest, they they walk out of it going like, holy shit, this was unlike anything else I've ever done before. So I want to wait till society is back to, to normal, right? And to, or to a certain degree, just as normal as we could possibly be. So what we're doing is we're pushing Skankfest South back now. It looks like it's going to be November in Houston. And we're looking at June for Skankfest New York. So we're just switching things. We didn't do Skankfest New York last year. So anybody who has Skankfest South tickets can use them for Skankfest New York. The venue we're looking at in New York is all outdoors. Um, so we'll do some tents and we'll, we'll sort of spread things out a little bit. It won't exactly be as um, tight as it's been in the past, right. because I think this summer, whereas I think we will have some normalcy, there's still going to be restrictions to a certain degree. And you just want to make, you don't want people to, not feel comfortable and that's both the audience and the performers so you want everyone to feel really good about being there you don't want to i don't want to do a stripped down version of what this is you know we could tech we could have technically done it this past summer did some outdoor shows called the skank fest but that's not we i it's such a special weekend and it's so unique that i i would rather not do it than do a stripped down version of it yeah because uh, i think ari shafir promised an outdoor skank fest and that never happened Ari Shafir is a lying Jew. It's an impeachable offense, I feel like. It really is. 
Um, yeah, actually, the uh, the first I think I, the first year I went to Skankfest was uh, the second year of its existence. I believe that was the year that uh, Zach Amico got pissed thrown on him by Ari Shafir. Oh, yeah. oh, and yeah. that didn't like I just thought of it as a, a very funny occurrence because I'm I listen to all these podcasts and I know the the tone and all that shit. Uh, one of my buddies that went was not that familiar, <laughs> and it didn't even dawn on me that when we left, he's like, "Is that a normal like day in this <laughs> world?" I'm like, "Yeah, pretty much." Yeah, I mean, look, we we took it a little bit far. The yeah. piss throwing it was two years in a row of piss throwing. We ended it last year. Um, you know, Ari was supposed to get me back because I threw a cup of piss at Ari the following year. Right. It was it was it started getting out of hand. The venue wasn't wasn't happy. Nobody was happy. <laughs> Nobody was happy about the piss being thrown. Um. So, uh, yeah, last year or, you know, two summers ago at Skankfest in New York, I ended up having a uh, sort of a sparring MMA match with Harrington, who's one of my producers. And uh, afterwards, we set up um, a pro wrestling bit where uh, Chuck Payne is a fucking six foot six, huge pro wrestler. He showed up and he fucking kicked my ass. He put me through a table, um, which was just, a you know, I'm an old school pro wrestling fan. So yeah. going through the, you know, the training for it and, and you know, going up against Chuck and having this moment where you big power slam and then he fucking puts me through a table. It was cool, dude. You know, it hurt like hell. You know, I pulled both my groin muscles. The whole weekend was fucking painful because of it. But it was a really, really cool um, experience, you know, just sort of a nostalgic thing. I always wanted to be a pro wrestler as a kid. So getting to do that bit was really, really fun. Um, but what I didn't know to get me back after Chuck put me through the table, I'm, you know, I'm rolling around holding my ribs. Um, my eyes are closed. I look up and I just see Ari Shafir's famous asshole coming toward <laughs> my face. And when I wasn't looking, he pulled down his pants and he just sat directly on my face. And Ari, if you don't know Ari Shafir, he has, he's a really, disgusting asshole and it is he he had hemorrhoids and he had like major surgeries on it and it is just loose meat it's truly a nightmare i can't even explain to you what it looks like but he sat directly on my face and that was the final jesus um, christ that was the final retribution for the piss throwing we agree we we agreed to let bygones be bygones at that point <laughs> because it had gone too far but that was it, it all culminated in ari shafir and i gotta say like ari shafir he ari he brings out the best in all of us like yeah. he's a prankster he's an og filthy fucked up comedian you think you know i i i was me and dave smith were roommates when I, we were 19 to 20 years old way before we started doing comedy way before legion of skanks was even a thought and we rented um national lampoons um whatever it was that he did the amazing racist on yeah and we were fans of Ari Shafir since before we even thought about doing comedy. We we were like, oh, this is the fucking funniest thing in the world. It just it really tapped into my type of comedy. So Ari, you know, when Ari comes around and Ari's on Legion of Skanks, love him or hate him, you have to understand he's bringing the best out of all of us. Today's the anniversary of the Kobe tweet, by the way. So rest in peace, yeah. Ari Shafir. Uh, rest in peace, Ari Shafir's career. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> how, uh, how weird is that, though? You mentioned, like, kind of becoming friends with guys that you looked up to in comedy and shit. I would be... So I'm so socially awkward with that shit. I just wouldn't talk to anyone. I'd be like, well, I'll never have a relationship with this guy because I fucking admire. Is that a weird thing that you have to adapt to? Uh, yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, I, you know, I was um, I was a fan of like I was really a big fan of like urban comedy um, growing up. So it was like Def Jam. But like, obviously, like, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy, somebody who I mentioned, you right. know, uh, Martin Lawrence specials killed me when I was a kid. Okay, so really that's why you hang out with only whites now. You didn't look up to them as much. You can well, yeah. I, I just I didn't really have that many 
people that were like in my life that I was like starstruck by. Yeah. Like I knew Gaffigan and Todd Barry from um, Dr. Katz. And like there was certain comics that I like I, I, I had watched Attell a lot when I was younger, but I wasn't like a massive fan of Attell. Right. I didn't really get how how much of a genius Attell was until I started watching him in comedy clubs regularly. Um, so it was never I was never super starstruck. Um, you know, Ari, when I met Ari, he had come to stand up New York. I was doing shows up there. Me and Dave we went out to a diner with him afterwards. And it was you know, it was at that point we had sort of been around enough famous comedians that it wasn't like, oh, my God, it's Ari Shafir. Yeah. Um, but once in a while, you you know, you'll meet somebody who's like of legendary status. Like, you know, one time I did a show and Seinfeld um, showed up and there's an energy that comes from certain people that are that are that famous where you almost get a little nervous. Um, Patrice was that way. You know, I, I, I was lucky enough to know Patrice fairly casually. Like I was invited to his house a couple of times for and he has like these big barbecues and dinners for holidays and just being friends with Big J and, and Kurt and these guys, um, you know, I was able to tag along and have, you know, a, a peripheral relationship with Patrice. But he was such a big personality and so intimidating that I was happy to just be in the background and to never be in, you know, in the sort of his line of fire because these guys would just trash each other. And and I I, I mean, it's such a sad thing that like, I never got to do a podcast with Patrice, like either Bobby right. Kelly's podcast or he, I mean, how great would Patrice be on Legion of Skanks? It would be, Oh my God. It'd be unbelievable. Jesus, Jesus Christ. Dude, I couldn't even fucking imagine. Um, so I never got to do that, but um, you know, a guy like Patrice or even like a tell now I've gone on the road with a tell a bunch. I wrote, I wrote a TV show with a tell, but every time I get a little bit like, it's fucking a tell, you know, you get almost, it's, it's more about the level that I respect these guys at than um, how famous they are. It was it was sad to hear you describe uh, the story. Where you smacked the pizza out of someone's hand, expecting a laugh, mm. because that is that crew, like Patrice and Jim Norton and Bobby Kelly and those guys. Like that was yeah. that crew's type of humor, and it just doesn't exist anymore. Where fucking with your friends in that way is funny. Yeah, the meanness, the, the mean meanness doesn't sell as much as it used to. But it was yeah. in finance. He was so happy. He got a free slice of pizza. He was like, "Dude, they're just giving out free slice of pizza over here," and I just <laughs> smacked it out of his hand, <laughs> expecting everyone to be like, "Ah!" And just it was two chicks and Ian were like, "What the fuck, dude? What is wrong with you?" And they were like, "That wasn't nice." And I was like, oh, "That should yeah. be the moment used as like the shift in culture. Like if yes. they, if that was on tape, that would be the moment that things changed." Yeah. All right, man. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We've got uh, Legion of Skanks, Real Ass Podcast. Believe you me and Gomez watches Seinfeld all on the Gas Digital Network. Um, oh, you're going to be, the, this won't be up for free until Monday, but people on uh, Patreon will see it. You'll be in Providence this weekend, right? Uh, yeah, I'll be with Big J tomorrow night in Providence, then February 12th and 14th, Houston, Texas with Zach Amico. And the 13th of February, I'll be in Lafayette, Louisiana. So if you guys go to my Instagram or Twitter, you guys can see ticket links for all those things. Yeah, go check all that out. It was cool. Uh, I was at the uh, Comedy Connection in Providence to see uh, Gillis in August. Oh, and sick. they actually have it set up pretty, like, maybe on stage it was different because I know the comedians kept referencing um, that it didn't sound not like the laughs uh, didn't sound normal. But being in the audience, it sounded like the laughs were there. You could take awesome. your masks off at your seat. So it seemed like a pretty, they have a good setup there. Good. Yeah. I'm excited about it. It's two sold out shows. So I'll get to go do some jokes with Big J, who's a genius. If you guys haven't seen Big J perform live, he's just one of the best in the world at this. So uh, yeah, that'll be fun. For sure. Check out Lewis. Uh, 
Louis J. Gomez on Instagram and Gomez, I'm sorry, Gomez Comedy on Instagram, Louis J. Gomez on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, Louis, I love Legion of Skanks. I love you, man. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. You're the man, Wine Mike. Sorry. But we, by the way, we did name the intern Gay Blind Mike now. I appreciate that. Will you remember, at it. least if I ever speak to you again, will you pretend to remember me? That's all I really I'll, de I'll definitely pretend. Okay. Thank, thank you. <laughs> all right, Louis. Thanks, man. You're the man.